0: Welcome to Pablo Torre Finds Out. I am Pablo Torre, and today we're going to find out what
1: this sound is. Barack Obama told you you could run for president. I was like, yeah. And he says, So how often would you say you hear voices? Right after this ad.
0: You're listening to DraftKings Network. So this is not going to be a very special episode of Pablo Torre finds out like, you know, we're an old sitcom from the 80s or something where today we're going to learn an important lesson about drugs or AIDS or hitchhiking, you know, or whatever, which is a little tricky because last week, the biggest story in American sports, the Super Bowl, became this.
1: Mass shooting at the Kansas City Super Bowl victory parade has left one person dead and nearly two dozen people with gunshot wounds.
0: The rapid gunfire sent thousands of panicked fans running for their lives. In an instant, the sound of joyous cheers and joyful chants were replaced with the sound of screams and sirens. The entire news cycle, you know what happened to it. It it became immediately revved up in this old argument about guns and politics and all of it felt tired, right? It it felt like everybody was exhausted in, in our pessimism and polarization and impotence, most of all. But when I took a minute to just think about the overlap between Kansas City and guns and sports... What I realized is that I really wanted to hear from one specific person, a guy with a truly incomparable political trajectory and life story. Because the first time I ever saw Jason Kander was back in 2016, when he was running for US Senate in Missouri and he was assembling an assault rifle, blindfolded. I'm
1: Jason Kander and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. In 2016, the NRA was relentlessly attacking me on the airwaves in Missouri um, because I had an F rating with the NRA, and I I ended up cutting this ad that is an argument for gun safety measures. So in the ad, while I'm making the argument, I'm blindfolded and I'm assembling a rifle at the same time. So you're running
0: against Senator Roy Blunt, uh,
1: the Republican senator
0: in Missouri, and it became uh and this is certainly uh, my view of it but for the washington post as well as many other outlets the best political ad of the year and i'm curious as to why you remember it being so effective
1: so the reason i think it was effective is two things one i just think it was a visual spectacle that people weren't expecting to see right um and then the but the bigger reason the reason i think it cut through is because it was sort of like a muscular argument for gun control. Um, it was me saying, yeah, I'm for gun control, and I know what the heck I'm talking about. But the but that is not enough. I think really the reason that the ad cut through and why so many people who disagreed with me on guns voted for me is not that they went, oh, he changed my mind about guns. It's that the ads the NRA was running, and they still run all the time, are not really meant to convince people that somebody like me wants to take their guns. It's really aimed at persuadable pro-gun voters to say, this person is not like you. And they're foreign to you and they wouldn't like you. And I think what that ad did is it was me saying, you and I may not agree, but you and I would get along fine. Like if there was a block party on your street and I rolled up, we would get along. And that sentiment has stuck with me for years because...
0: It is the sentiment that feels like an endangered species in American political discourse, especially now. And so when I think back at that ad, I think about it in the context of this desert in which there is a lack of 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 a notion that actually you and me might actually have more in common than we might think, despite all the ways in which we consume and vote uh, differently.
1: What is it's really lacking is this sense that like, yes, we may have arrived at things differently, but our values could be the same, which is a very politician-y thing for me to say. But so let me yep. like actually break it down. Because if you just leave it there, it just sounds like something a politician would say when they don't want to answer a question. <laughs> and what I mean is that I think Americans, at least persuadable Americans, are much more open to, to not agreeing with the people they vote for than we realize. And so breaking through is not, so often about communicating that your policies break with your party. That's what politicians think it is. I think it's just showing that you care about the same stuff, that you do the same sort of stuff. You know, it it takes you all the way back to Obama's famous convention speech in 04. The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. Red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states And we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states. And yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. We got some gay friends in the red states and we coach Little League in the blue states. It's that sort of commonality that it's very, very hard to communicate in this day and age.
0: NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, do not miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. DraftKings has you covered with lines on just about everything you can think of. I personally happen to love the player stat combos, particularly the points and assists and rebounds over under. And if you are new to DraftKings, you gotta check this out because new customers bet five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So what are you waiting for? Go and download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PABLO. That's code PABLO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler. Or in West Virginia, visit www.100gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources.
1: Tomorrow I'm going to start thinking about what we do to try and get back in the game, not me. Not me, but what we as a generation do, because this is a generation that is capable of greatness and is a numerous generation, and it has a lot of work left to do. Thank you. Stay with it. Thank you. The way
0: that Senate race unfolded for you um, was deeply interesting, almost from a sports analogy perspective.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You end up losing in 2016, but... The way that the numbers broke down, Hillary got blown out, Hillary Clinton got blown out by Donald Trump in the presidential election, 2016, November, by 19%. Um, Jason, you lost by what percentage?
1: 2.8.
0: 2.8, which means mathematically that what, like 16 or so percent of Missourians voted for Trump and Jason Kander, guy with the gun ad that was uh, a Democrat.
1: The liberal Jewish trial lawyer from the city.
0: This thing happened that's fascinating that you don't see often, which is... You won by losing.
1: Yeah, which is something I really didn't expect. This is before that was a thing that happened in American politics. I was sort of like patient <laughs> zero or whatever for that, you know? Um, because now, like, there and there are people who are friends of mine who who ran great races, and now we we know them because of it. Stacey Abrams, um, Beto, you know, people like that. And they're making a big difference in American politics. At this time, I I thought it was like, I, I mean, to go way back, I thought it was like Howard Dean. I thought it was like you lose a race and then... People are like, we've had enough. Thank you. You may exit stage right. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah!
0: You're fist pumping into oblivion at that point. You're naming yeah. states, fist pumping, and then you're
1: gone forever was the impression you had. That's how it worked. Um, you know, it wasn't like a, a baseball season. You don't just say, we'll, we'll get them next year. You're right. So. Uh, so to, it was it was a big surprise to me when people seemed to want to hear more from me. The analogy that I generally use for it is that like coming out from under 2016 and having people reach out and say like, no, we think maybe you're the guy was like emerging from the bunker after nuclear annihilation. And you're obviously despondent about the nuclear annihilation. And then you take some solace in the fact that your fellow survivors look at you and say, we think maybe you're in charge
0: it's not just some of the other survivors um as if they're just faceless people um in january of 2017 barack obama is giving his 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 last interview uh as president he's in the oval office he's talking to the pot america guys and he is asked about who gives him hope for the future and the very first name he
1: mentions my guy in missouri candor uh, who, who lost but seems extraordinarily talented seems like a sharp guy. And I hope that he uh, gets back on the horse. But then by the winter of 17, like getting close to January of 18, um, his team reaches out and they're like, no, for real, he wants to sit down with you. So you need to get out here. So I, I came out to D.C. and met with him in his like private office.
0: Yeah. And the thing that you took away from that meeting, and I, I encourage you here to be, um, you know, uh, as blunt as your emotions maybe were at the time, your takeaway was what?
1: My takeaway was that he thinks I could do it. Um, it wasn't like you're my only guy. It wasn't like that. But it it was like, hey, you're for real. And I think you're for real. And I want you to be in the mix for this. And you're
0: heading into, at this point, I'm just getting the political calendar in front of me, correct? Um, yeah, it's taking us to April 2018. It's Nashua, New Hampshire, and Mm -hmm. your moment as a political speechmaker, this thing that you had been distinguished by and training for, um, describe what that moment in New Hampshire was for people who aren't fluent
1: in politics. That was the zenith of my political career. We will not let them roll back the progress that President Obama and so many people before him made. We won't let it happen because we're patriots and because we understand that patriotism is not about making everybody stand and salute the flag. Patriotism is about making this a country where everybody wants to. And we can be that country again. And in January of 2021, when we get a new president, we will be. Thank you. Thank you, New Hampshire. Thank you. So it was, it was very clearly the, this is the audition. Like if you nail, I mean, it was on national television. If you count C-SPAN Road to the White House as national television. I mean, it, it, it was yes. one of those things. It was the speech where legally you're not yet allowed to say, and that's why I'm running for president, but you say everything else and it's your audition. And it went very well. And it was very clear that it went very well.
0: I want to get to uh, what was unseen, which is that the next day, I presume you're flying out somewhere else. You know, uh, half a day or so later, and compare the compare how you felt in that moment to the feeling that you had coming off of the stage.
1: For a little context, what we have, what we've kind of been dancing around here, is that you know I served in Afghanistan, six or seven, as an Army intelligence officer, and I came home with symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but I, I didn't acknowledge them to myself. And had I had treated them when I initially started to detect them, I think it would have gone very differently, but I neglected them, I denied that they were there. And over the course of the 10 years that followed, it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where I really went about a decade without a good night's sleep. I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, and I did not think very highly of myself as a person, even though I thought, extremely highly of myself as a politician and as a performer, so to speak. Yeah. And what I was doing, I don't really think I understood this at all at the time, is I was self-medicating using the substance that was most available to me, which was adrenaline and attention and my career. Um, And so I was giving these speeches like pretty much every day, doing performances, you know, media interviews, whatever and that would bridge me to the next day because as long as i wasn't in my own mind then i could avoid the you know disruptive thoughts and and the dark thoughts that i was having and so the bigger the speech and the bigger the moment the longer that endorphin ride would last and the better i would feel and so when this happened and it was like hey we are heading to the top of the mountain it was to me, like, this should be, I should be good for a while, right? Because usually a really, like, a really great performance might last me like a week. Um, and instead, by the time my ass hit the seat on the plane at the Manchester airport in New Hampshire, um, I, I felt as empty as I had the day after the election in 2016. And that was really the first time that internally I started to acknowledge to myself this might be a lot more serious than I have given it credit for.
0: So just to say it very clearly, so you had embarked on a presidential
1: campaign
0: while having an untreated mental injury.
1: Yeah. Which is a yeah, hell just of a your story, Jason. story of a psychological yeah. disorder that you keep secret while you're running for president, including secret from yourself. The symptoms you were dealing with, Jason, what were the symptoms
0: um, as you were sort of sussing out in your own brain, what do I have here?
1: I'd been having these violent nightmares, which had become night terrors, which if anybody's interested, you can look up the difference. They just suck a lot more. And then uh, these feelings of shame and guilt, and, uh, and also feeling like my brain hadn't really um, processed the idea ever that I was home and safe. So, you know, I, I couldn't really sit in a restaurant if I couldn't see the door. When I had been secretary of state, my staff, because they didn't know me before I went to Afghanistan, they just understood, well, the boss doesn't like it when people sit behind him in a meeting. You know, people just had gotten used to these things around me. And so I was having all these symptoms, uh, hypervigilance, meaning I felt like I was in danger all the time, um, and just stress. I mean, that's why they call it post-traumatic stress. And so the, the acknowledgement to yourself that
0: this is PTSD, that post-traumatic stress disorder is, is, um, is going to be your story too, how does that, how does that finally um sink in with you?
1: The first thing I realized was I didn't think that I had it in me to make it, you know, the distance in a presidential campaign. And I just mean, like physically, I was exhausted. I mean, I, I really, because of nightmares that I had, um, PTSD nightmares, I di- I just had gone 10 years without sleeping and it was getting worse. And so, and I was getting depressed, which, you know, if, if you have PTSD and then you have really bad nightmares for 10 years and you don't sleep, you're going to get depressed. And, and that's what was happening. And so when I kind of semi came to the conclusion that I maybe couldn't do it, I raised that to my uh, campaign manager and one of my best friends, uh, Abe Brekov. and he was sort of ready with a idea. He just sort of threw out there, not expecting me to, to jump at, which was, well, you could just quit running all over the country and you could run for mayor of Kansas City, which I'm a fifth generation Kansas City and I love my hometown. And that immediately felt like somebody had thrown me like a life preserver. And I was like, that's what I need to do. And so the campaign for mayor was 99, 99 days long. And it was of all the campaigns I'd ever been in, it was the only one I'd ever entered as the front runner, I mean, it was like it. it right. should have been so much fun, Pablo. Like, like I was running for mayor of Kansas City, and within a week of announcing, I was on Seth Meyers. Like, I'm seeing a lady in a few days who has a possum problem. Like, I'm gonna go uh, walk around. We're gonna look at that. It's important. You're gonna look at the possum problem. Absolutely, we gotta try
0: and fix it. I mean, like, I government thought is about trying to solve people's the problems. Most boring lives. That sounds kick ass. Come with me. I'm down.
1: While this was going on. I was getting worse and worse. And now I was getting worse faster to the point where I was starting to have a more frequent suicidal ideation. And that finally scared me a lot. And in early October, uh, like I guess when I called the Veterans Crisis Line, it was like October 1st or or the end of September. Um, and I just called and it was the first time that I ever had ever admitted to somebody other than my wife that I was having suicidal ideation. And... When I spoke to the woman on the other end of the phone, it was her tone of voice that just got through to me and made me realize I don't sound any different to her than any other vet she's talked to. And that's when I finally had to admit, like I wasn't different than any other vet she had talked to. And that's when I decided to go get help, which is what I did on October 2nd of 2018, and to drop out of the race.
0: I want to put this in the context of of guns again because your ad, the thing that propelled you to national fame was this ad in which you were assembling your rifle blindfolded. And Mm -hmm. in your mind, how are you seeing that all now through the lens, the private lens of your experience in Afghanistan?
1: It felt fraudulent to me because, um, you know, my job in Afghanistan as an intelligence officer was, I, I now can look back and realize it was very dangerous and it was very traumatic. And, you know, my job was to go out and to develop relationships as my commander put it, develop relationships with thugs so that I could bring back information about other thugs, which when you are going out frequently just you and your translator in an unarmored vehicle in Afghanistan, that's a very dangerous thing to do and you're very vulnerable for hours at a time. Um, But uh, I never had to fire my weapon because Mm. my job was different. My job was to go out and thankfully successfully do everything I could to avoid being kidnapped. Well, And only later when I finally went to the VA did somebody listen to what I had to say and say to me, like, you're a combat veteran. Like, what would make you think that that is anything other than a combat experience? Well, because to me, again, like I had grown up on Black Hawk Down and, you know, and all this stuff. And like, to me, that's combat. And anything short of that didn't count. And the other reason is, is because one of the things the Army does that allows us to be successful in wars is from the moment you get off the bus at basic to the moment you render or return your final salute, a very steady message is communicated to you through the culture of the military, which is what you're doing is no big deal. And I actually don't fault the military for that because if it weren't for me believing that while I'm doing the job, I couldn't keep walking into meetings with people who might want to kill me and bringing back valuable information. Sure. But you. so you have to believe that what you're doing is no big deal compared to somebody else. But then when you leave, nobody flips that switch off. And so... We are constantly wondering why so many veterans don't go get help. And we chalk it up to thinking, well, they're trying to be too, quote unquote, manly. No, I think it's usually that we just feel like we have it on good authority. What we did was no big deal. So why would we need help?
0: You're checking yourself into the VA. And what do you bring with you, Jason? What do you take with you into the Veterans Administration Hospital?
1: Yeah. Um, at the time, I was reading an advanced copy uh, of a book that a friend in the publishing industry had sent me because I'm a huge baseball guy. The Phenomenon, the book by Rick Ankeel. The irony was not lost on me at the time that I was I was heading into the VA to check myself out of public life and into Suicide Watch. And the only uh, possession that they allowed me to keep in the little holding cell was a paperback copy of a book about written by a guy who had been the next thing, the the guy who everybody thought was going to be yes. the man in baseball, and who then uh, you know got the yips and had to leave because of because of a psychological thing. And then Chipper Jones up, wild pitch. Gallaraga up with runners at second and third, and a save of a would-be wild pitch, and then on a walk to Galarraga, wild pitch, and now another wild pitch going to the Wildness Hall of Fame, I think.
0: So when you show up and uh, again, you're bringing all of the baggage with you that we've now outlined here, you've talked to Obama, you've gotten in front of America and given these speeches. And so when you are now um, sitting down for your official questionnaire in
1: which you're gonna tell the truth for the first time, uh, how does that go? So usually when I would walk around town and people would recognize me or at least do like double takes, it was somewhat gratifying, right? Empowering maybe. Um, when you are being checked into suicide watch at the psych ward at the VA, it is more like mortifying because nobody's like asking for selfies. They're professionals, but you can, you know, you know, you can tell when someone has Mm -hmm. recognized you and they kind of do that extra look. And so it was embarrassing. And then this resident comes in, resident uh, on duty, the psych resident. And it was pretty apparent within the first minute or two that he didn't know who I was. He was from out of town and didn't recognize me at all. And that was like really freeing and, and a big relief. So we talked for like 30 minutes and I lay out all these symptoms for him and he's about ready to actually let me go. And he just sort of offhandedly asks, he says, by the way, do you have like a particularly stressful job or something? And I say, well, I'm in politics. And he's like, what does that mean? And I just kind of gave him a very short version. I said, well, you know, I was going to run for president, and I decided to run for mayor, but I'm going to call that off tomorrow. I want to come here and get help. And that threw him, and he's like, president of what? Now, remember, (laughs) he's looking at a guy who's on suicide watch who's not even wearing his own clothes. Like, I'm, I'm in scrubs that are several sizes too big, sitting on a stainless steel bed, like, hugging my knees, and explaining, yeah, it's not a big deal. I was a presidential candidate. And he's, <laughs> and, but it doesn't occur to me. So I'm like, of the United States. And so he, we have a little back and forth. And he's like, who told you you could run for president? And now I have gone from really relieved that this dude doesn't recognize me to kind of irritated that he doesn't believe me. So somewhat arrogantly, I say, I don't know what to tell you, man. I spent like an hour and a half just me and Obama in his office and he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. And so he takes this in for a second and he says, Barack Obama told you you could run for president. I was like, yeah. And he says, so how often would you say you hear voices? (laughs) So that was my first day at the VA.
0: Sound the trumpets, it's horse racing time. So saddle up for action with DK Horse, an official DraftKings affiliate. Right now, new customers who download the DK Horse app can get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250. So just deposit $25 or more and complete the playthrough requirement. Wager on your favorite horses, then watch the races live right in the app. Download the DK Horse app now. New customers can get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250 when they opt in with code PTFO. Only on the DK Horse app. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER, 18+, 21+, plus, in certain states to open or access an account and a resident of a state where DK Horse is available. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. One per new customer. Match calculated on first deposit up to a maximum of $250. Deposit requires two-time playthrough of settled wagers within 168 hours. Bonus released in $25 increments. Deposit and eligibility restrictions apply. See terms at dkhorse.com. So now it's hopefully clear to you how Jason Kander has had a trajectory pretty much unlike anyone else in American politics. He is 42 now, by the way. He is still a baby in politician years. And I should mention that when he taped that viral gun ad, which was eight years ago now, um, he was Missouri's secretary of state, the youngest statewide elected official in America, which he covers in a really good book that he wrote about his family and his recovery titled Invisible Storm. And if you read that or if you just talk to Jason, what becomes clear, too, is that he is very different from me, at least, in a very significant way. Because Jason Kander is a gun guy. He still is. Which is why what I wanted to find out here today is what he specifically sees as a realistic, optimistic way forward. Without any political spin or bullshit on what
1: I consider to be a uniquely American problem. My relationship to guns start as a kid. My dad was a cop here in Kansas City, so I grew up, we would go shoot pistols. Um, I I never really went hunting. Most people around here, they, they grew up hunting. I didn't. I grew up shooting pistols with my dad and um and my dad taught me how to handle a gun and and you know he taught me those things and and how to respect it and so it was a cultural and plus like everybody i knew their dads owned like a rifle and they went hunting and all that um so it's just it's part of the culture here and then and then i went in the military and i learned as i said in that ad how to respect my rifle how to how to show the proper respect for it as a tool and so my perspective often on this when I look at things like assault weapons for instance is that is a tool that's meant for a specific thing I, and now I'm you know look I'm not going to get into a whole thing where I, I lecture whoever's listening about it's a weapon of war and all that um I've done that plenty and I still feel that way but I also look I work I work at a place where um, as you mentioned I I work at a national organization focused on on veterans. So I work with a lot of fellow combat vets. And I live here and work here in Kansas City. So there's all sorts of political views among the leadership of the place where where I I work. And a lot of them are very pro-gun. I mean, there's an AR-15 hanging on the wall at the place where I work. Mm. And so when I look at the debate as it exists right now in this country over guns, what I see is a very successful effort by gun makers to pit... People like yourself who have a view that is the same view I have uh, about gun policy, but who don't have a familiarity with guns against my neighbors. And that's, that's the divide that works politically. If they can make people, if they can make my neighbor, who I know owns guns um, and is an enthusiast uh, a bit, if they can make him feel like you are out to get him and that you and he have nothing in common, well, then they have divided and conquered. But to me, the real thing that's going on in this country is not between people who want gun safety and people who own guns. It should be between everyday Americans, whether they love guns or not, and the gun companies that are making enormous profits without having to have any responsibility for the danger of the product they create. And that's what prompted me this last week to start talking a lot about the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, PLACA.
0: Yeah, and so for people who don't know PLACA, um, I'm doing this episode because I want people to know about it. Because it helps Mm -hmm. explain why it is that guns, not just from a cultural perspective, but from a legal liability perspective, have have been given this halo of protection in a codified um, federal way.
1: Yeah, to understand it, we got to go back a little bit to the 90s, where there started to be a bunch of successful lawsuits at the local level, Um, against gun makers. Um, If people want like a cultural touch point to think of in this, they can think of the Grisham book that became the movie Runaway Jury, which was about a lawsuit against a gun company because at the time the book was written, that was happening a lot and the gun companies were losing. The analogy to think of for this is tobacco. The big breakthrough in tobacco litigation was when juries were presented with evidence that the gun companies actually had the science to know about the carcinogenic levels in cigarettes and weren't doing anything to change their product or to you know make people aware of it. So what was happening is you were increasingly having these lawsuits that were saying, hey, juries were saying, hey, um, you took absolutely to the gun maker or the gun seller, you took absolutely no precautions whatsoever or did any checks about who you were selling to or what their purpose was for using it. And juries started holding gun companies liable and responsible for that. And what most industries, tobacco included, you know, several others, think about when tires on on Ford Explorers were blowing up. Yes, the auto industry. Over. Yeah, trucking, the trucking industry, when um, juries started saying, you're not requiring your truckers sleep enough. And as a result, there's accidents happening. What other industries in America do over the last 200 plus years, when they are exposed to this kind of liability is they reform their corporate practices. They change their product. They make it safer. They do things to avoid liability. It's why when you see disclaimers on things, people make jokes, oh, a lawyer wrote that. Well, that's right. A lawyer did write it. And they had to because this beautiful thing come up with by the founders of this country called a jury, which is just 12 people getting together and deciding what the standard in their community is for conduct, decided that, they had had business conduct that was beyond the pale and it had to change. It also was born out of this thing in the US Constitution that's not the second amendment, it's the seventh amendment, which says that in any matter where there's a disagreement of more than $20 in value, you are guaranteed a civil trial by jury. So if you take all that together, that's why most industries reform when they're hit with successful lawsuits. That's not what the gun industry did the gun industry used their political power to go to Congress and get PLACA passed in 2005. It was supported by Republicans and Democrats, not across the board, but there were some Democrats. It was signed by George W. Bush. And what the law says basically is that you may not bring a lawsuit against uh, a gun maker so long as the product functioned as it was meant to function. Basically, if one child points a gun at another child and the gun goes off and kills them, No other details are important whatsoever so long as the gun didn't fire by accident, Um, as long as the gun didn't, like, you know, um, malfunction. And that, since that law passed in 2005, gun crime in this country has gone up 59%. And we debate all the time background checks and a gun registry, and we ask ourselves, why won't they make smart guns required? And for those Mm -hmm. who don't know... Smart guns is technology that exists, much like the tobacco companies knew the science about how carcinogenic cigarettes were and how addictive nicotine was. The technology exists so that just like your iPhone or anything else, a gun can only work when it's your hand on the gun. And by the way, the majority of gun crime in this country is committed using stolen guns. Even though that exists, we have no laws to say that that that's the kind of gun that you have to sell. But if juries could weigh in on it, You can guarantee they would say that's the reasonable expectation in their community. Right.
0: And I want to point out that, look, the last statistics that I could find here um, are are a bit old. They're from around the year 2000, but it's it's the ATF and what they're pointing out when it comes to what they call crime guns, which is to say guns that are found in the investigation of a crime, the guns that pop up when, you know, the police are investigating something. um, The stat is is crazy. And it speaks to this very premise. I want to just read it out here. Um, The ATF reported that 5% of dealers sell about 90% of crime guns. And so, again, I just want you to help me explain this, Jason, because gun manufacturers, Smith & Wesson and so forth, um, they make the guns, but dealers sell them. And in the United States, 5% are responsible for 90% of the guns that turn out to be an alleged problem. And so the question then becomes, how do we then put pressure
1: On the gun manufacturers to not sell to that 5%. If PLACA had never been passed, we wouldn't have to, you and I wouldn't have to even talk about it because there would have already been lawsuits by victims of gun crime against gun manufacturers to say, hey, you know who you were selling, who you were allowing to sell your gun. You knew it and you did it anyway. And that does not meet the standard of care. And, And that's where things were headed. Um, But instead, they created this liability shield that also acts as a morality shield. They no longer have to have any moral responsibility whatsoever. Right.
0: And I just want to spell out further um, when it comes to the ATF, which is, again, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, um, the most recent data from 2022, what they point out in terms of like, well, the ATF federal bodies are looking into all of this stuff, aren't they? Aren't they investigating and and checking on on the dealers and manufacturers? Well, it turns out that statistically speaking, um, in 2022, the ATF, they only inspected about 7,300 dealers, which is nine percent of those who are allowed by law to to sell guns. And so, basically, what they point out here, this is their own statistics, a gun dealer could expect to be inspected once every 10 years. And by comparison, federal regulators of elevators and restaurants, they require inspections five to 10 times more frequently. And so, yeah. the question is, okay, it's not happening on the level of uh, inspections, and it's not happening on the level of uh, certainly an independent sense of concern on behalf of the manufacturers because their motive is profit.
1: And that's why my argument is if you repeal placa, they will reform themselves because it's the because otherwise they will lose so much money by losing lawsuits. It's it's why when I drive down the street, if there's someone smoking in the car next to me, my 10-year-old son will say, Dad, look, that person is smoking. And when you and I were kids, there were smoking sections on airplanes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because over time, the industry had to reform because of the lawsuits. You know, lawsuits get a bad rap in our country, but it's why it's why a lot of it's why water doesn't kill us. It's why you know it's it's a check. It's a check on corporate greed exactly. And that's my point is that you can you can be listening to this and you can have a room in your house that is your gun room with an NRA membership that's three generations in your family. And you're still getting screwed by the gun makers because they have no obligation to make their product as safe as possible because they've been given a get-out-of-jail-free card.
0: So to get those manufacturers to do something different, what we're going to do is expose them to lawsuits. And as a result, they will call for what? What what would they want the government to do because they are going to be subject to litigation for it?
1: Well, let me before i answer that let me just slightly rephrase what you're saying because i want this to be clear we're not just exposing them to lawsuits all we're doing is saying if we repeal this law you're going to be treated exactly the same as every other industry that makes a product in this country like that's and that's important yes yes, yes, yes. it's not like we're we're not saying hey we want you to get we're saying just be treated like everybody who makes widgets in america right so if we were to do that here's what i think would happen i'm quite sure of it, actually. One of the first things that would happen is that they would develop, all of a sudden, they would roll out the fact that they have the technology to make smart guns because it would not be in their financial interest anymore to be exposed to lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit when all you have to do as a trial attorney that's suing them is present to the jury the fact that they've already researched the product and they already know how to do it, right? A jury, you wouldn't even need that. A jury is going to implicitly understand that if they can, if their phone can catch them askance scance and open up from the, you know, barely seeing their face, then a gun can work when the owner picks it up and not work otherwise. And they're gonna to have to do that because they're gonna lose their ass in court if they don't. That's the first thing. The second thing is they are going to, I promise you, lobby the government to pass stringent background checks. And here's why. Because juries are going to expect just as they were starting to expect it in the 90s before this law was passed, expect them to check the backgrounds of the individuals and expect gun sellers in particular to check the backgrounds of the individuals that they're selling guns to. The gun companies are not going to want to do that themselves. They're not going to want to have to pay to do that. So they're going to lobby the government to do it so that they offload that expense. Then they're going to want a gun registry because for them to make sure that they are not held liable for a gun that was stolen and used improperly, that they took the proper legal steps after a bunch of lawsuits established what those steps are to keep the gun from getting into the wrong hands, they're going to want to know who owns each gun so that they can avoid liability. And then you know what they're going to do? They're going to they're gonna create subsidiary companies for gun insurance because they're going to make a ton of money selling insurance to people to say, (laughs) you want to own a gun? You got to have insurance, just like if you want to own a car. And now you have a market that doesn't reward pushing as many guns out into the population unchecked as possible, but instead rewards doing it in a way that is much safer. Right. And again, gun violence in the United States Record levels
0: as of 2022 and rising nearly 50,000 gun deaths a year, um, guns being the leading cause of death for young people. Mm -hmm. And so what you're talking about here as a gun guy yourself, so to speak, is a way to let's not talk about taking guns away from anybody. Right. You're talking about something different to avoid actually what is, and I'll use this word meaning, meaningfully, although no pun intended, uh, a very triggering feeling of, oh no, they're coming for what I already
1: have. Yeah. It's a recognition that you can love guns all you want, but it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to then pledge loyalty, undying loyalty to Smith & Wesson. Smith & Wesson yes. is, a, it's just a bunch of suits, man. It's all it is. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's like, I, I, I don't, it wouldn't make any sense. It's Smokers were not like, you know what? I'm just a Brown and Williamson guy. I'm just an R.J. Reynolds guy. Yeah, like, I got my
0: Joe Camel back tattoo because I love <laughs> cigarettes so much.
1: Exactly. Like, you can keep being a, a hobbyist, a shooter, a hunter. You can even be a self-defense extremist. Sure. But you can do all those things and want the people who make products in America to make them as safely as possible, and to actually be held to the same legal standards as everybody else who makes things in America.
0: Right, and so I wanna point out that last year, um, the Sandy Hook families had a pretty notable win when it came to figuring out, again, what are the angles that we can attack PLACA using? And so they used, uh, I think it was local Connecticut law against marketing guns to children. And that was due to, again, complicated, legalese that I won't uh, sort of explain in full here, that was a way to get to PLACA. Like, oh, there was also a conflict with local law. And so that was a win in Connecticut.
1: It's important to note, though, right, that because it was a a state law and therefore a state lawsuit, it also, to some degree, uh, mitigates the amount of damage that can be sustained by the gunmaker as a result, as opposed to a lawsuit that can have federal reach right? Mm. And there are 30 states with their own version of PLACA. So Giffords, among other things, is working to repeal as many of those state-level laws as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the other thing um, that had just happened uh, late last month uh, in January, which was uh, The Mexican government suing gun manufacturers because it turns out that a consequence of having many uh, of a super, super majority of crime guns flooding into uh, the world from these irresponsible gun dealers is that they wind up in Mexico and that they end up fueling the drug trade. And a lot of the again, it's just, of course, the thing that many people on the other side of this issue are complaining about otherwise, you know, cartels and violence, it's happening because of the very thing we are talking about here. How do you put clamps on the irresponsibility of gun dealers? And so the Mexican government sued the gun manufacturers in the United States, and they just won an appeals court victory that said, actually, that can proceed because PLACA does not apply the same way to the Mexican government as it does, of course, in the United States and its citizenry and businesses.
1: I think it's really important to point out that for all the talk we have in this country about all the things that are coming across the border, fentanyl and everything else, what the Mexican government is saying is, hey, man, we have like real gun control here. And like the people who have guns here, for the most part, absent your laws in the United States would just be like law enforcement and the military. But now the cartels are getting tons of guns because they're coming across the border the other way because of the loose gun laws in the United States and because the gun makers are selling knowing that they're selling to, uh, sellers who are, who are going to the cartels. Right.
0: And so how do you, again, create a responsibility or, a, or a worry? Um, you you, you kill placa and some of that stuff um, might actually follow.
1: Let's point out that the result of that is likely to be that a lot of gun makers are gonna say it's not worth it and they're gonna hopefully, this is what the Mexican government's wanting to do, they're going to stop selling to the gun maker, to the gun sellers who are selling to the cartels. That's why the Mexican government is yes. doing it. And that's the point.
0: Jason, as you've energized me on an issue and educated me on an issue that I want lots of people to know about, I want to ask you a question about the question that everybody, I imagine, still asks you, which is what is your political future? Because I know this is the thing that you have struggled with the most psychologically, in a sense. Um, but how do you answer that when I am not the only person to hear you talk and be like, hey, so what are you up to um, maybe this fall?
1: <laughs> well, um- First of all, it's genuinely flattering that people ask. I spent a large part of my life really wanting people to ask. I don't, I'm not in that part of my life anymore, but I try and acknowledge that that's still a nice thing. Um, Look, uh, the way I always phrase this, it's not careful politically. It's careful from the standpoint of there are people listening who I want them to understand something about mental health. Um, I want to be clear. The reason I'm not running for office is not because I don't think my mental health can take it. Um, I'm in a post-traumatic growth phase of my life. And if I wanted to run for president uh, and function as president, I could absolutely do that. I don't say that to preserve the opportunity to run for president later. I say it because there's somebody listening right now or watching right now who, you know, is going to have a combat veteran or some other sufferer of PTSD come in for an interview. And they're going to wonder, well, can they really do the job? And I just want them to hear me say, I have PTSD and I could be president. And I think I could be pretty good at it, you know, so that I want to lay that marker down. The answer to the question is, um, the reason that I have no interest right now, and I don't mean right now, like in the way politicians say, I'm not thinking about that right now when they are only thinking about that. Um, I mean, I I have no interest in that right now for a few reasons. One, I am really mentally healthy now and I'm able to enjoy my family. And I have a 10-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm enjoying that a lot. And the other thing is, I just don't know why I would. Because in the last few years, since I dropped out of public life, I have been able to build villages of tiny houses around the country for homeless veterans and been able to help be and be a part through Veterans Community Project. People can go to vcp.org to find out more uh, of of uh, actually trying to bring a lot of my fellow vets home. And I, And I know I'm making a difference in their life. And then I got involved sort of, accidentally, because I was trying to get my translator's family out of Afghanistan in in rescuing folks uh, or helping rescue folks out of the country, started an organization that has now gotten over 2,100 Afghan allies who were facing brutal Taliban retribution out of the country. And when I look back at the 10 years I spent in politics, I never did anything that even remotely rivaled the difference that I've made in the world out of politics. Mm. And until that changes... I don't see the reason for me to do that right now. What I see is, I love what I'm doing. I get to help coach my son's baseball team. I'm around, you know, all the time. I I drop my kids off and pick them up. I I I play baseball. I play in an amateur baseball team.
0: When what number in your list of things that you don't want to give up right now is your adult men's baseball league?
1: Honestly, pretty high, man. Like (laughs) like I play like. When I'm healthy I play like 40 or 50 act not softball actual baseball games No we're we're
0: we're, we're completing I want to make it clear for everybody we're completing the poetic loop of guy who walked into the yeah. VA with Rick Ankiel's autobiography is now actually playing baseball as an adult
1: Yeah and like Rick Ankiel because my shoulder is shot I went from pitcher to center fielder uh, <laughs> not doing it at quite the level Rick Ankiel did and in the order, no hits. And Keel out to deep right field has a chance to leave the ballpark. It's gone—a three-run shot for Rick And Keel back in the major leagues. Remarkable. Look, man. I mean, I work out almost every day so that I can remain the eight or nine hitter on a team full of guys who used to get paid to do this, and I love it. And it's, it's you know, I'm there for my family. I'm there in this part. And in, in present in my life, and making a bigger impact on the world than I ever did. So if those things change, and it seems like the way for me to make an impact on the world, and my kids are grown, and they don't want me to hang around them anymore, yeah, I might run for mayor or president, but I might not, and that's okay with me.
0: Yeah. Um, Jason Kander, on every level, Um, thank you for your service here. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, man. I really uh, enjoy uh, this show a lot. I actually, uh, it's fun for me to be on it. And um, I, can I just say as a fellow podcaster, what an awesome concept and execution of a show. Like from the title to the way that you do it, <laughs> uh, it's it really like, a- as a listener, I always enjoy I'm like, what am I going to find out about? And especially because of your energy, like you have a, oh my God, you're teaching me right now energy. And it is, Bubbo, it's awesome. I really enjoy it.
0: And I should say then, as a result, uh, I am Pablo Torre, and I do approve this message.
1: (laughs) Beautiful. Well executed.
0: But I do need to thank my campaign staff because it does take a village to run Pablo Torre finds out. And that village is full of people like Michael Antonucci, Ryan Cortez, Sam Daywig, Juan Galindo, Patrick Kim, Neely Loman, Rachel Miller Howard, Ethan Schreier, Carl Scott, Matt Sullivan, Chris Tuminello, and Juliet Warren. Our studio engineering is by RG Systems. Our post-production by NGW Post. Our theme song is from John Bravo, as always. And next Tuesday, a very different discovery. This has been Pablo Torre Finds Out, a Meadowlark Media production, and I'll talk to you next time.
1: Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.
0: Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have.
1: It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids.